0: In Luke chapter 15, we're told what happens when one sinner repents. Would you turn there in your Bibles with me tonight? Luke chapter 15. There we have three parables, three stories or illustrations. And each parable tells us about being lost and then being found. There's a lost sheep and then a lost coin And then a lost son. It's what happens when one sinner repents. Back in 2009, we studied the book of Luke together as a church. And when we came to Luke 15, I spent four separate messages on the chapter. And I knew after preaching those four weeks in a row that someday, in the not too distant future, I would want to come back and preach the chapter again all at once. Because in four messages on Luke 15, I think we may have missed some of the forests for the trees. Trees are interesting up close, but forests can be spectacular. And I don't know if any of this will be spectacular tonight. I know God's word is, and I'd like to try to show you something of the forest of it. So in just a minute here, I'm going to read all of Luke 15, and then we'll talk about what all three parables together teach us. What they teach us about ourselves, about God, about salvation, about heaven, and about our mission. Before I read Luke 15, let me tell you what to watch for before I read it. It begins with a complaint, with grumbling. Religious leaders are grumbling that Jesus receives sinners and dines with them. Then Jesus tells these three parables And in each one of the parable, something is lost, something is sought out, something is found, and then celebrated. And then the last parable ends where the whole thing began. Someone is grumbling, even angry, that a sinner is received and is celebrating. Luke 15, verse 1 And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There are five kinds of things that these parables teach us altogether. They teach us first about our human condition. Our human condition. What is our human condition by nature? We're lost. We, by nature, are lost, like the sheep, like the coin, like the sun. Or perhaps you've been found. Most of us in this room have been found. But don't let us forget where we came from. And let us not forget where all of humanity is, apart from Jesus Christ. Lost. And hence, helpless. A lost coin doesn't even know it's lost. It doesn't have legs, and it can't roll itself down a hill to get back home. A lost sheep may or may not know that it's lost. They're notoriously dumb. They get lost easily, and they stay lost pretty darn well. They have no instincts like dogs or cats to go home. In fact, they have the opposite. They they stray. The lost son, at first, doesn't look like he's lost when he leaves home as a rich man. He's free as a bird. He's living life on his own terms, finally. He's fulfilling pleasure after pleasure. But how quickly his condition changes. He's far away from home and suddenly out of cash. When a famine strikes, he's lost. He has no one. He has no one but pigs. No one gave him anything. And his lostness has a clear, vivid, moral component to it that the coin and the sheep don't have, which reminds us that sin isn't just accidental. It is an unfortunate lostness that we're talking about. It's moral lostness. It's rebellion. Our condition is that we're lost, helpless, and rebellious. Look at verse 13. The son squandered his property with loose living, literally. He spent everything, verse 14 says. One third of a a wealthy estate. The older brother was probably right later on when he said, verse 30, that he has devoured your possessions with prostitutes. And the younger brother was surely right when he later confessed to his father, verse 21, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Lost, helpless, rebellious, and miserable, and desperate. A severe famine, out of money. He finds some meager work feeding pigs, And even then, he's gazing at the pig's food. Verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that were in the pig's troughs. And Jesus is no doubt describing here a Jew, a Jewish man. It's a Jew who's feeding pigs, and pigs to Jews are unclean. He may be even eating among them. For us Today, this scene is just gross. It's not hygienic. It's probably not wise. It's certainly not pleasant. But for a Jew, this meant ceremonial and religious uncleanness. In their world, there's a spiritual repulsiveness to this. There's really no direct correlation for us. We can maybe imagine. Imagine a son who's gotten so low, so desperate, that he lives in an abandoned house, With heroin addicts. You've probably seen something like that on TV. And the only food he gets is what he gets from picking through the trash of the leftovers of heroin addicts or what he finds on the floor in this dirty house. Does that make your stomach turn? Does that make you feel bad? Well, that gives you something of what This picture is meant to convey. And if you say, well, that's one messed up dude. That's not me. That never was me. I I never hit rock bottom like that. I, I may have told some white lies in my life before. I might have cheated on my income taxes once, twice or five times, maybe. But I've never done anything remotely this bad. This is someone's human condition. It's not human condition. Well, if you think that, then let me point out to you what might be a more familiar picture of your lostness and rebellion. The older brother. Remember him in verse 28? He was angry and he refused to go in. Even when his father came out and entreated or begged him, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a goat. You didn't even give me good birthday parties. But when this son of yours came, can't even bring himself to mention his name. Not my brother. When this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you see that there are two different forms of lostness? Two different expressions of lostness. One is dirty, it's rebellious, it's in your face, it's indignant, it's independent. The other is, quote unquote, clean. It works hard, it works late, it's out in the field, it dots the I's and crosses the T's, but it's self righteous, it's cold. It's unhappy, it's judgmental, it's proud, and it's ugly. That's our human condition, whether you look like the older brother or the younger brother before Christ came to save you. Secondly, these three parables powerfully portray for us God's disposition and mission. It shows us God, that he's concerned for the lost. Like a shepherd who counts his sheep, he has a hundred, but he counts ninety-nine. One is on the loose, one is strayed, and hence one is in grave danger. He's on his own, he's doomed to die apart from intervention. It's like a woman, maybe a widow. She only has so much. She's got ten silver coins, about ten full days' wages. A thousand bucks, each one's worth a hundred, let's say. Who doesn't go looking for a missing $100 bill? A poor widow sure does. She has reason to be concerned. Like a father with a wayward, rebellious son. Some of you know exactly what that looks like and what that feels like. A son who's far away, doing much to harm himself and his life. They're concerned. And God is concerned for that which is lost. He is concerned for individuals. God doesn't have two sons. He doesn't have 10 coins or 99 sheep. He has a whole lot more to deal with than that. But he is no less personal and no less individually focused than this woman was on her coin. And this man was on his son. And this shepherd was on his sheep. He's concerned for people. He's concerned and so he seeks. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. The woman looks for her coin See see verse 8? She lights a lamp. She stays up late. She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently until she finds it. God's disposition and mission is that He is concerned and He seeks. and, And guess what? He finds. He finds. He finds what's His. He will not relent, He will not sleep. Jesus said elsewhere, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I will bring them in and they will be with me. He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. He said, all that the Father has given me will come to me and of those I will lose none of them. He's concerned, he seeks, he finds, and then he rejoices. He rejoices. Don't you just love the descriptions of rejoicing in each of these stories? They're so rich, if not absurd. I mean, a woman finds a coin and she throws a lavish party. (laughs) A man gets his sheep back and he calls all his neighbors and friends. Come on, let's celebrate this thing. And they're going... I don't even like your sheep. I, I would rather you had 99 instead of 100. No, not if they're good friends. They wouldn't do that. But still, it's, it seems extreme. But God rejoices. And he rejoices in repentance. Get each of those in your head. God rejoices. It's not just parents who rejoice in repentance. It's not just pastors who rejoice in repentance. God rejoices in repentance. And He rejoices, not just smirks, not just pats Himself on the back, not just winks over at Gabriel. The God who knows the future, because He planned the future, rejoices when it actually happens. He rejoices in repentance. In repentance. This is his disposition and mission. Thirdly, these parables show us the nature of salvation. What is salvation? It's a rescue, isn't it? It's a rescue. God rescues. He goes out and he searches for his own like the shepherd with the wayward sheep, like the woman with the lost coin. By the way, it'd be a picky point to note that the father of the prodigal doesn't go looking for the son. Parables aren't supposed to make you look at everything and examine them too, too carefully. The son is different, he's not an inanimate, well, a, a, a coin that's not moving. It's not a sheep that has no hope of coming back home. The son is a sentient being. He's a human being with thoughts and a will. And he's in a faraway country. The father's only hope is that the son would eventually come to his senses and come home. And yet in verse 20, you see him on the watch apparently. Likely on the watch for his own son. And when his son appears far away on the horizon of the hill, the father, it says, saw him and ran to him and embraced him. He pursued him and he hugged him. Salvation turns on repentance. It is a rescue, but it turns on repentance. Repentance is all through this passage. Jesus eats with sinners, but he eats with sinners in pursuit of their repentance. And he receives them and celebrates with them in view of their repentance. You see, the goal here that is talked about in verse 1 and verse 2, sinners drawing near to Jesus, this picture of him receiving sinners and eating with them, that picture there isn't meant to convey that eating with sinners is an end in itself. Like that's what we're supposed to do. Just be friends with the most sinful you can find is, if they're in the midst of their sin. Well, maybe don't do it, but, but don't preach against it or something like that. No, Jesus is teaching tax collectors and sinners. They're drawing near to hear him. And in verse 7 and in verse 10, heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. This whole thing turns on repentance. Repentance is this. Knowing our lostness. Admitting our rebellion. Giving up on ourselves. Confessing our wrong. Confessing to the one that we've wronged. God. It is a realization of unworthiness. It makes no demands. It knows that it has no bargaining chips. And it throws itself wholly on the mercy of God and trusts his character and grace. That is done for the first time when we're converted, when we're born again. And then we believe. And then in the Christian life, it's done thousands of times. As sin comes into our lives once again, we repent. Can't you see many of those things that I described there defining repentance happening when the Son came to himself? After he came to himself, then in verse 18, he said, I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. I think it's easy to sort of view this as some sort of meritorious effort. I've lost my sonship, but I'll work for you, and then I'll get some money from you. I don't know. I think probably this is a better picture of faith than that. He knows his gracious father has crumbs that fall from the table, from the master's table, down to his servants. His servants eat well. And so he knows the unworthiness. He knows that he has essentially abandoned sonship. And yet, he calls on his father, believing him to be a good man and a merciful one. Salvation is a rescue with repentance and it leads to restoration and reconciliation. There's relationship involved in it, right? I mean, when this shepherd found his sheep, he laid it on his shoulders and brought him home. There's restoration there. There's reconciliation there, even more so with the son who's returned to his father thinking that his sonship was done but his father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. He still presumed nothing on his unworthiness in response to his father's exuberance, exuberant running and embracing and kissing. But the father refused to acknowledge any of his son's confession, really, or any of his son's talk of treat me one of, as one of your hired servants. And instead, the father called his servants. In verse 22, he told them to bring a kingly robe for his son, to put the signet ring on his finger, to put slippers on his feet. He's coming home. And he called for a grand celebration because his son was lost and now is found. He's restored, and he's restored fully. He's now restored As a son who will once again have an inheritance. Without exception. Full inheritance as a genuine and true son like he never left. But this salvation is also costly. Let's not miss that. This passage shows us that. The prodigal son blew through one third of his father's fortune. He returned hoping to be a hired hand. The father didn't welcome him back with conditions or with a repayment plan. He welcomed him back as a full fledged son. That's costly. Fourthly, these parables together communicate much about heaven's celebration. Heaven's celebration, or maybe we should say heaven's celebrations, plural. Notice how particularly focused heaven's celebrations must be. You get the impression that there is no party in heaven like those which are for sinners' repentance. They celebrate repentance even more than obedience. In fact, a hundred times more. That seems shocking, but that's what verse 7 says. A hundred times more. They celebrate repentance than obedience in heaven. That's not to minimize obedience at all. That's not to glorify sin. That's not an encouragement to pursue sin so that we can get to repentance and make heaven happy again. No. But it is noteworthy that repentance seems so important to heaven because, no doubt, it glorifies grace. Because it brings to restoration It brings to reality that for which Christ died. And we know this will be an anthem in heaven. Revelation 5 talks about the praise there being to the worthy lamb who was slain, who ransomed an innumerable multitude for God. Praise for redemption seems to be the centerpiece of heaven's worship. And yet every time in human history, one of these ransomed is brought to repentance, heaven rejoices. It's not just generalized praise for his general salvation. It's not just end time praise when we all finally get there and we're the ones praising him. But there are particular individual celebrations each time one sinner repents. And it's led by God. God leads the way. Like the shepherd who finds the sheep and calls his friends and neighbors to come. And like the woman who does the same. Like the father who calls on his whole household to join him in celebrating his son's return. So God leads all of heaven and all of its angels to come and celebrate each repentance. Which means that this praise and the celebration is corporate. It involves others. That's the nature of celebration, isn't it? It seeks to involve others. Mysteriously so. When we're happy, we want others to see it. When we smile or laugh, we often look to others around us who are doing the same. No one celebrates a party alone. That's the irony of the thing, party of one. That's, that's no party. I mean, in, even introverts, they like a good party every now and then, don't they? It's corporate. It's even heaven-wide. Just think, what does it look like when all of heaven does anything together? That's a big deal. And every time a sinner repents? Yeah. And it's joyous. It's not just an empty routine for them. The bell rings, and they go, oh, great, here we go again. (laughs) You know, they get out the kazoos, and someone says, who's going to clean up the confetti this time, you know? No, that's what I would say. Imagine living with someone who celebrated birthdays by the hour or by the minute. Imagine a new mother. Who wanted to throw a parade every time her baby smiled. You'd go, come on, really, please? It's, it's getting old. But not in heaven. Not with repentance. They don't tire from it. They're not bored with it. They're not distracted with something else. They're singularly focused on people's repentance. And uniquely happy when it happens. Each time a multitude of over and over a multitude which no man can number when one finds a silver coin you might be happy and when a man gets one of his 100 sheep back that's reason to to be excited Having a lost son return is far more reason to celebrate. But how much more does heaven celebrate over the eternal salvation of lost souls for the glory of God and because of the blood of Christ? It's corporate. And it's joyous. And therefore we eat. Notice how food is all throughout this thing. You dance and you eat. Reminds us of the marriage supper of the Lamb that will come at the end of the age. Lastly, this passage should remind us about our imitation. Our imitation of God. Those of us who know our lostness and who have already experienced God seeking us and finding us and saving us, we who have repented and keep on repenting, We who've been restored at great cost, we not only join our Father in celebrating when repentance happens, but we also join our Father and his concern, and and his shepherd, his son. When when there's reason to be concerned for those who are still lost, and the concern that we should have for those who at one time seem to have come home, but now... We're not so sure, it's not clear. The country far away is beckoning again and they're walking in that direction. There's reason for concern. Come home, come home, you who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, come home. We need to join Jesus in his concern. And we need to imitate him in his seeking. We are seekers. We are his emissaries. What a privilege to be included in the Father's business. And to think that we're ashamed to do it at times. Or afraid to do it at times. Or that there's something else more pressing to do at times. Concerned, we need to seek. And he will find. He is a finding. This room is proof that Jesus is still a finding. Just look around, friend, and rejoice. He is seeking and finding. And he uses us to do that. And when sinners repent, and when the wayward come back home, we will join God, we will join heaven's angels Each time. And we will rejoice. Older brother types, are you okay if she repents? Are you okay if he comes home? Oh, if no she or he comes to your mind, you probably don't need to worry. If someone comes to mind, worry. Worry. You could be like this older brother who's outside the party, mad that they're in. May millions more, and even perhaps some here tonight, come to sing and confess words like that which Horatius Bonar wrote in 1843, a Scottish theologian. Horatius Bonar wrote a hymn based on Luke 15. I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the fold. I did not love my shepherd's voice. I would not be controlled. I was a wayward child. I did not love my home. I did not love my father's voice. I loved afar to roam. The shepherd sought his sheep, the father sought his child. They followed me o'er vale and hill, o'er deserts waste and wild. They found me nigh to death, famished, faint, and alone. They bound me with the bands of love, and they saved this wandering one. Jesus my shepherd is, t'was he that loved my soul, t'was he that washed me in his blood, t'was he that made me whole. "'Twas he that sought the lost, that found the wandering sheep. "'Twas he that brought me to the fold, tis he that still doth keep. "'I was a wandering sheep, I would not be controlled, "'but now I love my shepherd's voice, I love, I love the fold. "'I was a wayward child, I once preferred to roam, "'but now I love my father's voice,' I love, I love his home.